You're about to listen to a true story told live because this is True Stories Live. Brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. Please give an enormously huge, warm, supportive welcome for Pasco Q. Kevlin. Uh, to, to those that have um, heard me do this before, I apologise for being back up here, but at, I think it was about half past seven this morning, I got the look across the breakfast table from Lucy, which said, we're a person short. I said, well, I'm a short person, but um, I'll, I'll, I'll step up. Um, and thank you for, for asking me. I'm very, very grateful to you. Because you know how much I love this. So um, this, at times, will feel like it's a story about me, but it's not. It's a story about my relationship with my grandfather and the notion of heroism. Uh, in my experience, people that I've read about and encountered that I would think of or grow to think of as heroes have a tendency to swim against the tide. They go uh, in their own direction because they believe that that's the right thing to do at the time. So my granddad, um, bits here will be a bit wobbly, but everyone's okay at the end. My granddad was uh, definitely my hero growing up. Um, he was a committed socialist, um, he, was at, he was a recruiter for the International Brigades. He, was, um, he fought fascists in Cable Street, and he joined the army in '37. And um, I grew up listening to his tales. Uh, he worked his way through the ranks. Uh, he left the army as a major, and I still, as a kid, got to see chaps stop in the street and salute him. And that was quite a thing for, for a young boy. So my hero, for lots of reasons. The stories that he would tell would, uh, the older I got, probably became more graphic and he became more brave and he felt that he was sharing things with me that I needed to know um, in order to find ways that I might stand my own ground the older I got. And uh, he, he could go on for hours. I can, I can tell a yarn, but he could go on for hours. And they would always be exciting. There would always be something about his comrades, and that's what he called the people that he served beside. They were always his comrades, and they were fighting fascists, and they were quite clear about what they were doing and why they were doing it. And um, he, you know, he, 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 he told lots and lots of stories of heroism, of people around him, and things that he saw people do, and how people would um, literally sacrifice their lives for other people. And, um, you know, that's quite something as a young person growing up, to be in the company of a person that's lived that type of a life. Um, but he'd always end the stories with, don't worry, son, I had a good war. I was like, well, how do you have a good war? He said, well, I got to see, you know, some of the best things that human beings are capable of doing. So he set quite a high benchmark. My father, by contrast, was an absolute useless scouse scally, but he was <laughs> entertaining. Um, so uh, I've, I've, I've left school at 16, I've gone to work in London for a year, I've gone to train to be a hairdresser, 
at the end of a year, I sort of thought, well, this really isn't for me. I want to do something a bit different. I want to, I want to go and travel. I want to do things. And I thought, I know what, I'm going to take the summer off. And I'm going to go and live with Grandad and Nan for the summer. And they lived in Claxton-on-Sea. And um, still one of my favourite places. I'm very fortunate to have Yarmouth just up the road. It takes me back there. And so uh, Claxton-on-Sea for the summer. You arrive in Clacton, Grandad sort of, you know, packs you out, uh, tells me what my expected chores will be every day. He lived a very um, disciplined life right the way through. Uh, so every morning I would be expected to get up, run to the shop with him to get the newspaper, etc., etc. Et you know, everything had a time and a place, and, and he, that's how he lived. And he looked after my nan, who'd had a stroke at 50, and um, she was still the best turned out woman in Clacton. There was no two ways about it. That was how they lived. They paraded around Clacton on sea. And um, so I'm thinking, right, okay. And he said, the first thing you've got to do, son, you've got to get yourself a job. Right, okay, granddad, I'll, I'll, go, I'll go and walk around Clacton. I'll find a job. And this is 1985. There's not a lot of jobs in Clacton on sea in 85 for a 17 year old who's got a blue mohawk. Um, so there wasn't a lot of jobs. But uh, I thought, what's the best job I could do in Clacton? I could work on the pier. I could be a ride boy. That's what I'm going for. So I get onto the pier, uh, £12.50 a day. Um, I'm in. I've, I've, got a, 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 I've got a job on the pier. Thinking this is going to be it. I'm going to be working on the dodgems. I'm going to be you know, having an absolute blast. Well, I'm, I'm not local. I'm younger than everybody. And I've got a blue mohawk. I didn't fit in. They gave me the thing where you throw rings over things and you give people goldfish and bags of sweets. Wasn't what I was hoping for. So I'm, I've been there about two weeks and uh, I'm, I'm kind of loving it. It's, it's, it's still fun. There was good, um, you know, there was good compadre between everyone that was working on the pier. Um, and I'm coming home telling Granddad, yeah, I've got the job and it's all going great and very happy. And, um, he, you know, he seemed to be quite proud of me. And then uh, it was one of those really, uh, you know, those, those days when you have a summer school and uh, the, the, the waves really blew up. And it was, there was hardly anybody on the pier. And there was a, a, a guy that used to really irritate me called Austin Peacock. But the guy, the manager used to walk around at the end of the week and he'd, he'd just giving out our little brown bags with our wages in. And uh, he chucked it and he chucked his to Austin who was standing next to me and it went straight over the side. So without thinking, Austin just jumped straight in. <laughs> so everyone's standing on the side of the pier and they're looking out and he's getting carried out and he's still fully dressed. And um, somebody shouts out, he's got it, he's got it. And I said, he hasn't got it, he's, he's in trouble. And I was a strong swimmer, I've always been a strong swimmer. And so I said, get the lifeboat. And we've got a lifeboat literally 20 feet away from us. There's the lifeboat. Huh? Get the lifeboat, but I'm going in for him. So uh, I, I, I got to jump off the end of the pier, which is uh, a thing. Um, it was very exciting. If I'm, if I'm honest, it was a very exciting moment. I thought, I'm going out, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a hero. I'm going to go and rescue. I'm going for this guy. And so I get out to Austin. He's in a bit of a state. And um, it's that thing. You know, he's panicking and understands. So the first, the first thing I'm doing is stripping him down and, you know, just trying to keep him afloat. And uh, we're, we're bobbing about a bit. And it's like, right, we've... It's, it, I know that there's some steps down the end of the pier. And I think if I can get him to the steps, we've got half a chance of getting out. Uh, it's too far to swim to shore. So we're coming in, we're coming in, we're coming in. And, you know, I'm towing and kicking and shouting and grabbing and 
uh, and, and we get to the we get we we get to the steps. But at the bottom of the pier, you have these ferocious currents that run around the legs, and we get separated, and we get taken under the pier and spat out the other side. And uh, Austin's sort of over there, and I'm over there. So I, I go for him again, get hold of him. And I thought I haven't got it in me. I can't get him into shore. My last words: get the lifeboat. We were out there 45 minutes before the lifeboat came out. By the end of it, we were, we we're a long way offshore. And, uh, but we're, we're, we're okay. Austin's conscious. I'm, I'm okay. And uh, suddenly the lifeboat turns up. They haul us in, get us to shore. There's an ambulance on shore. They check me over. I'm good as gold. Austin's not doing so good. So they take him off to hospital, uh, give some statements and what have you. And then police and one of the managers of the pier... Uh, in the back of a police car. Please say that's the only time I've been in the back of a police car. Um, took me home to my granddad. And by this time, I've processed it all. Austin's okay. We're all okay. I've got my own little hero story. So the, the guy gets us to the front door, and he, he stands there, and he's going to my granddad, you know, your, your grandson here, amazing, so brave. And my granddad just stood there. Yep, yep. Great, thank you, thank you, thank you. And more or less shuts the bloody door on them. And I'm like, Grandad, he said, go and have a shower. Said, okay, go and have a shower, come out. He says, you all right? So I said, yeah, I'm fine. And he gives me the biggest right hand. And he's never laid a finger on me, my granddad. And he gave me the biggest right hand. And I stood there and I couldn't believe it. Absolute shock. And he said, that was a very, very stupid thing to do. <laughs> And at that moment, I thought, well, I've got all my ideas of what being a hero have all just been turned upside down. And he said, what on earth would I have told your mum? And that's the story. That's all it is. It's a simple story. Everyone was good, but the whole notion of heroism for me then has probably been a bit confused ever since. Uh, thank you for listening. Stories Live is a story show and story finding project brought to you by LJ Hope Productions, Norwich Arts Centre and me, Molly Naylor. For more information about all of the work that we do, head to our website, truestorieslive.co.uk. We're super grateful to be supported by Arts Council England, Norfolk County Council and Writer Centre Norwich. <laughs>